Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combine with big ideas to create game-changing disruption. I'm Sean Nason, founder of Man on Fire, and your host for the Combustion Chronicles. Throughout this series, we're bringing together the most unique and influential minds we could find to have honest conversations about not being okay with the status quo, blowing shit up, and working together to influence our shared future. We believe that when bold leaders ignite consumer-centric ideas with passion and grit, the result is an explosion that creates a better world for all of us. I'm here with my co-host, Matthew Nadu, Community Catalyst with Truth Tellers. On today's episode, we're speaking with Colin Egglesfield. On a whim, Colin attended a model talent search event in Chicago, and it wasn't too long before he was traveling to Europe and working with some of the top designers and photographers in the world. This led to him moving to New York City, where he continued to work in fashion and began to revisit his roots in acting. Soon, he was portraying the infamous Erica Kane's son on the long-lived daytime drama, All My Children, which led to roles on such shows as Melrose Place, The Client List, and led to several movies, including the romantic comedy Something Borrowed with Kate Hudson, Open Road with Andy Garcia, and The Space Between Us with Gary Oldman. In addition to acting, Colin actively participates in triathlons and marathons, raising money for St. Jude's Hospital and Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Having written his memoir, Agile Artist, Life Lessons from Hollywood and Beyond, Colin regularly speaks to groups around the world about the importance of discovering your voice and how to overcome life's challenges to realize your dream life. Welcome, Colin, to this episode. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So you listen to that bio and you have done amazing things. (laughs) First off, when I told some of my family members from the Midwest who I was speaking to, oh, they were like, oh my gosh, that's Erica Kane's son. And so it's so bad that Susan Lucci is just known as Erica Kane and that they don't even call her by her name, but they were yeah. so excited. So I can't <laughs> wait for them to hear this episode. So they're, they're fans of me being the transplanted, unaborted fetus son of Erica Kane, huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. how I'm known as. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, Colin, you play in so many different sandboxes, so to speak, from modeling to acting. You're engaged in community work as well as real estate. And you've also found time to write a memoir. So you're obviously not someone who is content to just settle into one role or interest by any means. So what drives you into all these different ventures? Again, thanks, Sean, for having me. I appreciate it. I love what you're doing. I love the message that you're putting out there and uh, just encouraging people to be more themselves. And uh, I think in today's day and age, it's, uh, it's difficult out there to really f- to figure out where we fit in. And I think that's, that's a big part of, uh, of my story is just growing up, I just was always struggling to find out where I fit in. And just, I guess I've always just been very curious about things and how things work and meeting different people. My mom is from Ireland. So at a very early age, we were traveling, you know, overseas to Ireland. And so I think it just opened up my eyes and my perspective to different ways of being. I think a lot of people grow up in a certain town and that's all they know. And unfortunately, sometimes people get stuck in that kind of a bubble or that just what they know and they're and just not being exposed to what else is out there the things that we were not exposed to and that we were not familiar with 
we tend to not trust and we tend to be afraid of it. So we, we put up these walls that prevent us from trying new things and doing new things and meeting new friends. And instead of you know, what you see out there in the news and the media about different countries and people going to war over different things, when I started to travel myself and going to these different countries, I, you know, meeting people from all over the world, I realized people are people. And we all have our, our dreams and our desires. And uh, for me, I just, it was hard for me to decide I'm doing one thing. I was always curious about one day I wanted to be an astronaut. The next minute I wanted to be shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. And then, you know, the next minute I wanted to uh, be a doctor. And so it was just, uh, I think just by the universe telling me, well, you can't decide on one thing. So why don't we... Uh, why don't we serve you up a profession where you can pretty much play anything you want to? And that's, I think, how I ended up in acting. Yeah, so great stuff. Love it. And, you know, Colin, you and I have had conversations on the phone and really want the listeners to understand some of your personal journey. And you wrote your memoir, Agile Artist, where you have shared what you've learned from the adversity and challenges you have faced throughout the course of your life. You actually had a period in time um, when you, you battled cancer, and we can get into that, and you didn't want to talk about it during that time, but you and I have had some real open conversations about it. Can you share what, what went on in your life during this time? Man, having a doctor tell you that you have cancer is uh, it's not a fun experience. And I had uh, I'd finally found my passion in life. I'd finally found that acting was something that I felt worthwhile and being a worthwhile adventure. And it felt like something that I could really pour my heart, soul, and my whole complete self into because it was just all encompassing. It required, acting requires you to dig deep and uh, to use all your resources mentally, emotionally, physically. I always grew up being an athlete. And so I always was uh, trying to push myself to the, the, the those challenges and seeing what I could accomplish and see what I was made of. And that's what I've always loved about sports is that it's an equal playing field for lack of a better description on, you know, you got to put in the work to see the results. And I took that same mentality into my career of being an actor. And uh, I just, I loved it. I put in the work. And after eight long years of audition after audition after audition, and in my career, I've gone on over 2000 auditions in my 20-year career. I was doing the statistics, doing the research when I was writing my book, Agile Artist. And of those 2,000 auditions, I only have 47 credits to my name. So I'm not a mathematician, but you know, you quick little calculator calculation that comes out to about a 2% success rate. And you know, so if I'm only successful 2% of the time, and there's a lot of people out there who are in sales professions and you know, who, who deal with rejection on a, on a daily basis, it really comes down to, you know, what is it that you're passionate about and what is it that you really care about? And for me, it was, it was acting. It, it was worth the rejection. It was worth the 1,900 and whatever knows. And after I finally booked my first real steady acting job on all my children, I didn't care that I was a transplanted fetus or that it was a soap opera. I was just excited to have a professional acting job where when people ask me, what do you do for a living? I could honestly tell them in their face, I'm an actor. 
I make a living as an actor. And I was so proud of it because it takes a lot to get an acting job. I had a three-year contract and I felt like I was on top of the world. I was 32 years old. Felt like, you know, I'm like, all right, finally, I made it. Now I can just kind of relax and enjoy where I'm at. And I think there's this misnomer that we sometimes can fall into, this misconception about once we get there, we'll be happy. And once we get to a certain location or once we get the girl or once we get the million dollars, we're going to be happy. And for me, it was like, okay, I'm happy. But the universe or God or whatever it is, has a funny way of reminding you to be grateful for what you have. Because uh, six months into my three-year contract, I woke up one morning and my left, <laughs> my left testicle was uh, the size of a golf ball slash maybe racquetball. And I was like, okay, this, you know, this doesn't seem right. And for like two months, I just ignored it because I was afraid of going to the doctor. I think a lot of, a lot of us hate going to the doctor. I hate going to the dentist, hate, hate all that stuff. So after two months, I realized though that the anxiety that was causing me was just probably having more, causing more stress than it needed to be. And I, I, I realized I needed to just figure out what this was because the fear of the unknown can drive you crazy. And uh, so I was like, I just got to find out what this is. So I went to my doctor, did an ultrasound blood test, went back to work the next day on all my children. And I finished a scene, went down into my dressing room and I, there was a voicemail from my doctor. Colin, this is Dr. So-and-so. I need you to come to my office right away. So I packed up my gear, ran down to the Lower East Side. I was in New York City, went into his office, sat down and proceeded to tell me, Colin, you have advanced stage testicular cancer. I'm scheduling you for surgery on Monday. This needs to come out now. And I was scheduled to work on Monday at all my children. And I told him, I said, Doc, I, I don't want to tell anyone at work that I have this. I just don't want anyone to know, can we do the surgery on Tuesday? And he was like, this has to come out. And I was like, yeah. And I was willing to risk one day of, you know, that one day could have been all the difference. And I was stupid enough to just have the surgery done on Tuesday and when they did the surgery, they take out, they go through your stomach. They don't just take out your testicle from, <laughs> from the scrotum. I know we're getting a little graphic here, but this is something that it was hard for me to talk about until even just a couple of years ago. And I think the reason why I talk about this now, why I write about it in my book is because I think a lot of people feel like they have to put on the game face and act like everything is okay. And um, after my doctor told me that, you know, I had to have the surgery and Again, the surgery entails cutting through the abdomen, similar to like a C-section with a, when a woman is having her, her baby taken out. And so they cut through the abdominal wall. They go down into the scrotum, remove the testicle, and then they also remove the veins in the arteries that lead up into your kidneys because that's where the cancer can spread. And they tested those vein and ar veins and arteries and found that there was cancer cells that were up there. So they decided they needed to do radiation. Now, Fortunately, I had the week off on all my children, so I didn't have to tell anyone at work. And then a week later, I went back to work and just feeling very ginger. And, you know, soap opera is the height of masculinity, right? We're on set with beautiful women having to take our shirt off and show the six pack and, you know, act cool and act like what it is to be a man. And here I was facing this surgery where I was, am I now half a man? Because I only have one testicle. And, you know, it started to just, I don't know, kind of made me question about like, 
okay, is this cancer going to spread? Every three months, I had to go for a chest X-ray, blood test, CAT scan, and they check to see if the cancer cells have spread. And if they show up in your lungs as white dots, that means it's spread into your lungs. And that's generally where it can manifest first. So every time I would go to my doctor's appointments, it was this anxiety of like, are they going to find something? And so going between being on set and being confident and being this machismo actor, soap opera guy, and then going into the hospital feeling scared and, and uncertain, it was just, uh, just kind of you know, a bit of a, a mind fuck. And a year after my surgery, I went in for my, uh, my third checkup and the doctor was doing his physical examination and he found tumor on the other side. He said, Colin, I think I feel another tumor. Now, when you get testicular cancer, only 5% of the cases does it happen on the other side. So I was like, what's going on? What, you know, what's, the, what's the problem? Why is it something I'm eating? Is it something I'm doing? Is it, you know, and, and so the, again, the fear of the unknown or just not knowing why this is happening to me was just really really scary and disconcerting. And so uh, they confirmed that it was cancer. So this time it was like, okay, they have to take it out. And now the thought of now having your testicles removed, it was like, what does that mean? Am I ever going to be able to have an erection? Am I ever going to be able to have children? I banked some sperm. So I've got some, my dude's frozen on ice in a sperm bank in New York City so I've got like six chances of doing IVF with, you know, my future wife. But now that I didn't, now that I don't have, you know, testicles and, and having that surgery, it was like, so what does that mean for me and my, my manhood? They told me I would have to take testosterone hormone replacement, which I do every day. And uh, I'm telling you, man, it was, it was scary. Not only just what does it mean to be a man, but is this cancer going to come back? And am I, am I going to live through this? And it wasn't until I was going through my radiation treatment and I was on uh, the set of all my children. And I, I didn't tell anyone because it was just embarrassing. I didn't want anyone to know. I think, again, we try to hide our problems from people. And especially with this being guy stuff, <laughs> I didn't want really anyone to know about it. I didn't want like the public to know about it. I thought it was going to get out and I was going to be known as the, uh, the actor without any balls. And I was just like, I don't want, I don't want that out there. And, uh, and it wasn't until I was on my third week of radiation treatment where I just, I couldn't function. I felt like I was going to throw up. My stomach was burning. It felt like the worst sunburn, I felt nauseous, sweaty. And my director came up to me and he was like, you don't look so good. You know, what, what's going on? And I, I just couldn't hold it in anymore. I just broke down. I just, I told him I was, I had cancer surgery and I was going through this radiation treatment and he was like, why didn't you tell anyone? And it's a funny question, right? It's like, why don't we tell anyone? I mean, are we that, are we that stubborn? And do we feel like we, we can't share something like that? Something so you know, intimate and scary with even the closest people we know. Yeah, and it, so <laughs> he's like, go tell our producer. She needs to know this. And so I went up there and I told her and it was the, Sean, it was the biggest relief because then I felt like I didn't have to hide anything anymore. I could just be me. And the other actors that I was working with, they were like, dude, if you want me to go to the hospital checkups with you, I had to go every month now for a chest x-ray, blood test, and just every month going to standing in front of Sloan Kettering Hospital and just having to uh, 
conjure up the courage to go in there to possibly find out if the cancer is spread. And I credit my mom for this because I just, uh, after my second diagnosis, I called her up. I said, mom, the cancer came back. You know, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm freaking out. And she said, Colin, you know, you may not be able to, to handle this. Colin, as you know yourself to be, may not be able to handle this. So who do you need to be? She said, you need to become a, a warrior. You need to put your armor on. You need to go to battle right now. And she was right. I was like, you know what? As an actor, I realized we learn a lot of amazing techniques and, and things in acting class for us to be able to walk into a tiny little audition studio in like Burbank, California, and create our reality. We as actors create our own reality. We create the character that we need to be to be able to walk into that room and pretend that that is a World War II battlefield or a courtroom. I mean, you name it. We practice these imaginary imagination exercises where we, we tap into what it means to be creative and create certainty in that situation. And I said, okay, who do I need to be? And I was like, who's the biggest, baddest warrior out there? At the time for me, it was Russell Crowe in Gladiator. So I cut out a picture of Russell Crowe, you know, the scene after he kicks the shit out of all the gladiators and he looks up at the... Uh, whoever they are up at the, the, the main balcony up there, you know, the people that are just like looking yep. down and he's like, are you not entertained? And he's holding the sword and he's got this fierce expression on his face. And I downloaded that picture from the internet and I put it on my wall. And this is one of the things I learned from one of my acting teachers too, is that you can create your reality. You can manifest any reality you want by feeding your brain with the imaging and the wording and the feeling of whatever it is you want to create in your life. And it's true. Like I would do these imaginary visualization exercises where I'd be sitting on my acting teacher's couch. And she said, imagine your dream job. And I was like, okay, World War II love story. She's like, you're standing, where, where are you? I'm like, uh, I'm on a street in Paris. She's like, okay, what does the sky look like? It's blue. Well, what color blue? It's powder blue. What color, the, what, what do the clouds look like? They're white. What do they look like? And she had me describe down to a T the cobblestones on the street, what the smell of the battle tanks driving by smelt like, and getting into your senses. And I shit you not, two weeks later, after doing this visualization exercise, I got sent a script to me. It was a World War II love story. Ended up, uh, she had me do the visualization exercise where she asked me who was directing. And I said, Steven Spielberg. And she had me do this exercise where he, you know, he's directing me and, and, giving me uh, compliments. And she said, who's the actress that you're working with? I said, Gwyneth Paltrow. So we did this whole visualization exercise. And then again, two weeks later, I get sent to this World War II script and I do it and I audition and fucking nailed it. And you know, there's times when you nail your audition and you're like, oh man, that was awesome. And so my audition or my agent called me up and he said, hey, Colin, how'd it go? I was like, oh, I fucking nailed it. And he was like, yeah, no, they loved you. And I was like, awesome. So Let's, you know, when do we start? And he was like, well, you didn't get the role. And I was like, fuck. I was like, really? He was like, yeah, they, they really liked you, but they're going with this other actor. And it, it can be crushing because it's, it's uh, I equate auditioning to like dating. You go on the first audition, much like the first date, you're kind of getting to know each other. Second audition, third audition, fourth audition. This audition, I only had to audition twice on. Well, uh, actually three times, but uh that second audition that I went on actually where I nailed it, 
And then they called me, he called me later and said, you didn't get the job. That was a Friday. I was like, damn it. And so I go through the weekend and, you know, much like a breakup, you, you just kind of like shake it off and go for a run. Just, you know, think about moving on, moving forward. So Monday, I get a call from my agent. And he says, hey, Colin, the producers of the movie called back. They said the guy that they had hired, he actually just got offered a World War, or he got offered a movie that Steven Spielberg is directing. So they want you to come back and audition again for this, for the role against another guy who they're going to bring in. And so the fact that I, two weeks prior, been on this acting teacher's couch, visualizing a World War II love story with Steven Spielberg as the director. And then two weeks later, I'm in this audition with this World War II script with a Steven Spielberg component. Call it coincidence, but I've done that several other times in my life where I've literally sat down and visualized what I want to create in my life. And it's happened. Wow. What a story, Colin. Like, you know, what I heard through that is you battled through and living through fear, living through loneliness, even struggling with your masculinity when all that happened. And truth tellers, we have this line uh, and tagline that says, living authentically in a land of bullshit. And so it seems like you have come to this place in this enlightenment, as you were talking about with this energy and these things, that you've learned how to live in that space and live authentically. But you've had some really, you know, those really hard challenges. And now that you've gone through all of that, you're in this new space, even in, in your life and what you're doing, causing some disruption. What would be your advice to yourself if you had to look back 20 years now in the place where you are today to where you were 20 years ago, what advice would you give yourself? Stand up for what you want. Stand up for what you believe. Voice what your concerns are. Voice that you don't want to do something. Tell people what, who you really are so that they, you don't waste their time, that they're not wasting your time. I grew up a people pleaser, middle child, Midwestern upbringing, Wanted to make everyone happy. Wanted to get A's on the report card so mom and dad would be happy and pat me on the back and say, good job, Colin. Felt like I needed to score the touchdowns in order for kids at school to like me and for me to be approved of. And it just, I think it puts us in this place of constantly trying to achieve in order to be accepted. And I think the actors that I've worked with, that I've really connected with, have been inspired by, are the ones that don't try to fit in. They just own their uniqueness. They own their quirkiness. They own their faults and they, they celebrate them. And I think the, the, the more you can start just showing the world your uniqueness, then people are, that allows people to really connect with you. And the thing is, not everyone's going to like you. It's unrealistic to, to expect that everyone is going to like you. One of my acting teachers said from day one, she said, you're going to get up on this stage some people are going to really like you. So 30% of the people you meet in life, they're going to like you. They're going to like your performance. They're going to think you're great. 30% of the people in this world are going to think you suck. They're going to not like your performance. They're going to not like you for whatever reason or another. And the other 40% in the world aren't going to give a fuck. So you might as well do what you want to do and what makes you happy. And the people that like you are going to find you. And you surround yourself with those people. It's unrealistic and you're going to waste your time and be incredibly frustrated trying to make sure everyone is happy. And that's the piece of advice I would have given myself 20 years ago. Hey, uh, Colin, it's Matt here. You talked about people pleasing and I feel like 
that's so big for men as well. And like, just like letting our career who define us as who we are. I'm sitting back and, and the one question that really comes to mind is you seem so well-rounded as a man, yet you were so conflicted about your masculinity. How has your idea of what a man is, how has that shifted since your bout with cancer and then just coming out of that on the other side? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, I think before my battle with cancer, I felt like I was on this constant hamster wheel trying to prove myself. And I don't wish cancer on anyone, but that experience, having your your balls removed, (laughs) makes you question, well, what is a man? Who am I? If I don't have balls, does that make me any less than a, of a man? So if I don't have balls, then, then, then what? I can't provide for a family. I, can't, I still can't get married. I, I can't uh, be there for other people. And as I started to ask myself these questions, and I'll tell you, it was the biggest relief in the world when like two days after my second surgery, I got an erection. I was like, hallelujah, it still works. I was like, after I had uh, used the testosterone gel, which is, you know, kind of gooey. And I was like, fuck, is this what I'm going to have to do every day for the rest of my life? And if that's the least that I have to do is put on this testosterone gel, you know, so that I can keep my muscle tone and that I can maintain my health as a man, then what is the psychology of a man? You know, if, if the testosterone makes you physically a man, then who are you psychologically as a man? And uh, it really forced me to make these, uh, to question that. And what I recognized was that I think what I've loved about acting is that uh, the characters that I've really studied and admired and the actors that I've really admired are the ones that were vulnerable, the ones that were, were not afraid to show their real emotion. I mean, that's what people are attracted to. And I started to recognize that the more I was letting my guard down, the more I was walking into my auditions, just saying, you know what? this is me, man. I'm tired of trying to prove myself. I'm tired of, I'd go into my first few auditions like, oh yeah, you know, I'm cool. I got it. No, yeah, I'm cool, man. Like, how you doing? Oh, great. Everything's great. Yeah. You know, just everything's cool. And it it wasn't. And I wasn't booking any acting jobs. And acting is an amazing, it's like shining up, holding up a mirror in front of you. And it's like, you're full of shit, man. You will not book an acting job if you walk in that room and you're full of shit, you have to be authentic. You have to be vulnerable. And it wasn't until that I started to just walk in these rooms like, I don't have it all figured out. This is who I am. This is what I have to offer. And then casting directors and directors are like, yes, that's it. That's what we want. That's real. And so I started to realize like, where else in my life am I not showing up real? And I, I went to the seminar one day and or this one weekend, and the, the seminar instructor asked me what I did for a living. I said, I'm an actor. And uh, after talking about an experience where I was beaten up when I was 11 years old, he was like, yeah, yeah, you, that's just your story. And it was the uh, Landmark Education, the forum. If anyone hasn't done it, I would highly recommend doing it. It strips away all your false stories and the, all the crap that you tell yourself about when Bob D'Amico beat you up and you know, sixth grade or when, when the girl broke up with you or wouldn't go with you to homecoming or whatever it is, we all, we all create these stories for ourselves that we, then when we get older, prevent us from really being ourselves and really being able to step into life confidently. And I told him the story of how I, you know, this kid 
beat me up when I was younger. And he was like, yeah, that's just your story. You just made that up. I go, what the fuck are you talking about? I didn't make that up. He, I could show you the bruises. He's like, so what did he, what did he do? He said he, he threw me down and he jumped on top of me. He said, our brains are meaning-making machines. Our brains need to make meaning of things, even if it's not real or true. And so he said, what meaning did you make up in that moment when this kid threw you down and was punching you? And I said, what did I make it mean? He said, how did you feel when he was doing that? I said, I felt weak. I felt angry. I felt helpless. He's like, yeah. So this guy sat on top of you, started punching you. And the meaning that your brain decided in that moment, I am weak. I'm a punching bag. I don't exist. I'm not strong. He's like, ever since you were 11 years old, Colin, you now have been trying to prove to the world that you're not weak, that you're strong, that you can handle it. And he said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm an actor. He said, you will never be a great actor. In front of this was in front of a hundred people. And I'm like starting to get like, kind of like pissed off. I'm like, well, you haven't seen my work and I may not win an Academy Award one day, but I, I'm on the show Melrose Place right now. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. He's like, doesn't matter. The fact that you are running around living your life from this quote unquote software that you programmed when you were an upset 11 year old will prevent you from reaching your true potential. I realized I created my identity to be this weak little kid who used to get beat up and didn't have a voice. And in that room, I realized that's just a made up belief. So you've been basically living your life from a false belief system. So now that you realize that's false, then what new belief system could you create for yourself right here, right now? And this is another hard one because people grow up with whatever they grow up with. And much like a child who is abused by his parents, when parent-child protective or child protective services comes to take that child away from their abusive parent, what does the child do? The child clings to their parent because that's all they know. Even though the protective services is pulling the child away, the child doesn't know any better. The child only knows its parent. And even if that parent is abusive, they will, we will cling to things that we know. We cling to all that negativity, all that shit, all that negative beliefs and the things because, well, that's just who I am. That's how I was raised. That's who I am. And it's all false. And then in this weekend seminar, the seminar leader would have these conversations with people. They're like, oh, what are you, you calling me? Like, fuck you. You don't know anything. And you can see how our identity, our egos try to protect our identities at all costs. And it's crazy how we dig in our heels when we may start to see that what we've all, we've believed in for the past 20 years or our whole life might be false. That's scary. Yeah. It's, (laughs) It's that, you know, as adults choosing to live in that, to stay living in that victim mentality. And it's easy. There's a payoff. You know, I I had a really similar experience a few years ago, Colin, where I was at a a men's retreat. And the opening night we did this exercise with strangers standing in front of us where you had to spend three minutes looking this stranger in the eyes and just continue saying, fuck you. Wow. And so at first it was, (laughs) 
you know, you go through the little boy, like the high school, junior high giggle, and here you are, grown men, and, you know, and just continue. And I found out after the third time doing that, and then I was screaming at this person, the stuff that I had held in for so many years, right? Yeah. And that it's choosing to move on. And, you know, we could go on here, uh, the great conversations, and we'll have you back and know that we're, we're friends for life here. Um, but as we close, we're going to move into this section that we call the combustion questions. Okay. Which are three random questions that we use this amazing algorithm for to pull these out of. So these three random questions have been pulled out for you here, Colin, um, that we're going to dive into and quick, rapid response to it and just have some fun with it. So your first combustion question, Colin, is this. Roller coaster or Ferris wheel? Roller coaster. Why? Fuck it. Bring on the adrenaline, man. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Combustion question number two. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Honor yourself. It was my first acting teacher. She said the most important thing you can do for yourself is honor yourself. If posed with a question or a decision to make in your life, ask yourself, does this honor me? Not does it help anyone else or help serve and whatever. If it doesn't honor you, then don't do it. Awesome. Love it. Okay. Here's, this is the tough one for you. So combustion question number three, Colin, what do you think about forks? I love forks because I am clumsy with chopsticks. <laughs> Love it. That could be like a weapon almost. That, that, that's right. Going around. That, that's right. Well, Colin, again, thank you so much for being on this. Thank you for sharing your personal story with Matt and I. I know there's so much more. Thank you. Stay safe and be well up there in Chicago and can't wait to see you, Colin. Thanks, Sean. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. None of this would be possible without you, the listener. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, look us up at Man on Fire Social on Instagram and Facebook, or find us on YouTube at the Combustion Chronicles. Give us a shout and join our disruption movement. And check out this episode's downloadable recap page at manonfire.co. We know you lead a busy life, so if you're driving, exercising, or maybe you're just blowing your own shit up, don't worry. We've already taken the notes for you. Each recap is filled with guest information, episode themes, quotes, resources, and more. And remember, please subscribe, rate, and review if you like what we are doing. And if you don't, do it anyways. Stay safe and be well.